Well, I want to say good morning to each of you this morning. Um, thank you so much for, for being here. And I really want to express my gratitude um, to all of those who were here last evening and participated in uh, the Night of Hope. Um, I've still got my brochure from this, and I just want to say thank you because I noticed many people from Stones Hill donated items. Um, they bid on auction items, they attended, they served, they contributed, they were sponsors at various levels of sponsorship. And um, you really, and of course Kayla was kind of the administrator behind all of it, so, and you showed up, this place was full of people. And uh, maybe you've wondered why the, the tables have been set up for the last several weeks. Well, one of the reasons is we, we knew we had a lot of fellowship events happening here. And so we just decided to leave the tables up. And um, I know it's maybe a little awkward when we don't have um, food on them, but next week we have breakfast, all right? And so uh, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent um, or you're wanting to enhance your worldview, uh, a biblical worldview, you want to make sure you're understanding that and, and growing in this, um, you're going to have an opportunity to hear Jeff Keaton next week. I actually went to college with Jeff, um, and uh, this was, I was maybe two or three years ahead of him, and uh, he's out currently in Virginia and runs a, a ministry called Renew a Nation, and uh, so like I said, if you're a parent or grandparent, you definitely want to hear him at 845 here in the sanctuary. Um, he's going to help, help uh, perhaps build some bridges for you and for us as a congregation as we try to move forward into becoming a biblical worldview church, uh, okay? And so we definitely want to uh, plan that way, and then he'll be speaking in the service that follows, uh, have the sermon time in the service that follows next week. And so, um, so just kind of plan on that and enjoy the morning with us together. But, but back to this, thank you so much for just making the Night of Hope what it was. It was truly a hope-filled night because of your ministry and your involvement. Um, you know how when you have a magician that performs, and he did a great job, Jared Hall did a great job, and when you have a magician that performs, you're always, or at least at times, are looking for volunteers from the audience. You know how that goes? Well, uh, Ben Mead happened to be here on the front row, and he got picked, okay? And he did a great job. I was so proud of Ben Mead. And I was, in fact, at the end of the night, I was thinking, you know, the Jared Hall Ben Mead show was pretty good. It was pretty good. And uh, he stepped up. And so, and where, I don't know if Ben can hear me, but you know what? It wouldn't have matter what number you picked. It was going to be gum on any of those six options. Believe me, it was. So don't beat yourself up, Ben. It was going to be gum all the way. Uh, but you, it was a great evening. You guys made it great. He made it great. And God was good. And uh, he set us up, I think, to really be a ministry. You guys are doing a great work in our community, and we praise God for you. Um, this morning, I want to, uh, want to look at Daniel chapter 3 with you again. And Isaac so ably read this whole passage for us a couple of weeks ago. And um, I'll probably read through it again, but I want to read through it. Um, and I want you to just uh, bear a couple of things in mind as I read through this. Uh, it's Daniel chapter 3, and um, I, wanna, I need to talk to you today a little bit about religious pluralism. Well, what's that? Well, it's that everybody's view is equal. Um, everybody's view is valid. You're free to believe what you want to believe. Just keep it private. Keep it private. And what we have to understand in a series like this where we're living in the lion's den, the people of God in exile, where it's, a, it's almost a hostile thing now to be in public with what you believe, okay? To not to take it from a privatized viewpoint into a, where you actually live out your viewpoints. It's a very dangerous, even hateful, even dare I say, from a secular viewpoint, an arrogant thing to do in today's cultural climate. Uh, in fact, We've looked at this series, um, and if we could reduce this series to a series of phrases, um, we, I've talked to you about living your life, stamping your child, drawing your line, standing your ground, loving your people, 
facing your crises, knowing your prophecy, trusting your Savior, and today we need to talk about understanding your culture. If we are going to thrive in the lion's den of today's culture, we have to understand the culture and the values of the culture such that we can live wisely and be discerning within this culture. And so it's interesting to me because when you have religious pluralism as the dominant worldview of today's culture, and not just of the t- today's culture, but we are living a globalist culture so that we are considering all the religions of the world, all the worldviews of the world. And when you're living in that kind of climate um, and you subscribe to the viewpoint that everybody's view is equal and that if any world religion or any worldview would even possibly suggest that they have an exclusionary insight on God, an absolute truth of God, if they suggest that or imply that in any way, they are considered the haters and the arrogant ones. Okay? And so what we, we have to keep in mind is that's the culture in which you live and that I live. And so when we have this, this idea of religious pluralism, when it is the foundation for how we see life and how we do life, there are some implications or practical aspects that will get lived out if you live in and subscribe to a world of religious pluralism. Those four ideas are, could be summed up this way. Uh, feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. This is the world that you live in and I live in. And when we understand this, the idea of religious pluralism and how that breaks down and gets lived out, then we begin to see and assess why culture is... is, uh, Uh, presenting as it is why culture is the way it is because these are the values that we have extrapolated out of this whole pluralistic age in which we live so we're going to be talking about that a little bit here this morning Uh, and I want you to bear that in mind because uh, when we live life according to those four maxims or we could say Uh, consequences of religious pluralism or we can even say gifts I mean if you want to look at it that way these are the gifts that religious pluralism has offered to us not necessarily good gifts but they're the gifts that the religious pluralism worldview has offered to us and that is that feelings are everything happiness is everything judging is the ultimate sin and God is the ultimate guest so I'll just do what feels good I'll just construct my own meaning in life I'll just be happy and that's the way the world views it so And why are we talking about this out of Daniel 3? Well, this is precisely what is happening in Daniel 3. And that is that you've got a a leader, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. You have a leader who has brought together this melting pot, this plethora of cultures and ethnicities and languages, representations. He's, he's taken captive from countries and nations all over the world. He's brought them into his kingdom, and now he's going to set up a loyalty test because he wants to know who's with him. And so you have all these different worldviews represented and all these different religions represented. And so... This representation, okay, here in Babylon, they're all there. And so now the king has a decision to make. He's got to figure out, he's got to figure out that how he's going to live in this new cultural environment with all these different belief systems. And this is what he decides to do. He decides to set it up this way. You know what? You nations can believe what you want to believe in private. You Jewish Hebrew boys can eat what you want to eat in private. Believe what you want to believe in private. Read whatever book you want to read in private. And all the other nations and all the other religions and belief systems, believe all that whatever in private. But when you live in Babylonian culture and you're in the Babylonian public, you're going to be Babylonian. And if you're not, 
we got a little thing called a furnace. And that's where you're headed. And he sets up this loyalty test. Okay? You know, you're going you're gonna to face a lot of tests like this in a culture that is religiously pluralistic. You're going to face tests. It'll be on your job. You might lose relationships, boyfriends and girlfriends over uh, your uh, loyalty to Christ and his calls and your viewpoints and your worldview. Um, you might get canceled, right? Uh, you, there's all kinds of things when you live in a Babylonian culture and you actually have the audacity to live out your faith. You know, I read about um, a couple weeks ago about 93 high school students about the age of some of our guys here, okay, uh, some of seniors and things, they were graduating, 93 high school students, and there was re recent legislation in their town um, where it was made unlawful to proclaim public it, pub publicly at a high school graduation, it was unlawful to proclaim a blessing, to speak a blessing, a prayer of blessing, a word of blessing over that graduating class 93 high school seniors and so the principal met with them and the vice principal met with them hey there's been recent legislation these decisions have been made nobody is allowed to speak about god or anything related to that at your high school graduation you 93 of you you all understand that yeah we all understand that day for graduation comes and you have the speeches you know the world is at your fingertips, uh, um, fly high and spread your wings and go, and it was all good, and it was all just typical uh, high school graduation stuff. And finally, they get to the end of this thing, and one of those, the, the valedictorian of the class gets up, and he stands just for a few moments at the microphone. And then, after this pregnant pause, he just lets out a huge, right into the mic, a huge sneeze, yes, achoo, just like that. And all the other 92 high school seniors stood to their feet and in unison said, God bless you. <laughs> and all the parents and all of the family and extended uh, friends and relatives attending that graduation stood to their feet because these 93 high school graduates had the audacity not just to privatize their faith but to go public with what they truly believed. What I'm saying to you this morning is that you are, line, you are in the lion's den. There's going to be times when you're in situations where it's okay Yes, to believe privately and, and to have a personal relationship with Christ and to walk with God personally. But there's going to be a time in your life, especially in the culture we, in which we live, that God is going to invite you to walk that out. He's going to challenge you to walk it out. And this morning, I want to encourage you. I would be amiss if I, in this sermon series, do not encourage you. There's going to be moments when you're under the loyalty test and it's going to be so critical in those moments that you go public with your faith. You go public. You articulate why it is you believe what you believe. Listen, you're in a minority position, okay? Many, many times from the cultural standpoint, you're in a minority position. Very few people are going to talk about young earth. You just heard about that a couple of weeks ago. Very few people are going to talk about the global flood and how silly it is to believe such fable and fictional tales. You're in a minority position in the culture. But you've got, you got God on your side. You have the reliability of the text. You have the reliability of what God has done in history, who he is, how he's revealed himself in Jesus, what he's done for the world. You've got God on your side. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Don't cower. Don't back into the corner. Suck your thumb. Play pity parties. No, no, no. You have the authority of the king in your life. You have the authority of the scriptures behind you. You step forward and you let, you let, don't just privatize your faith. Live your life personally, yes, but go public with the values that you hold dear. And God will use that in the culture. Now listen, what we see here in Daniel 
um, chapter 3. And let's just read through this um, quickly here. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, you're going to see that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's about 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. You know the plain of Dura... Uh, it's actually a, the word plain appears back in Genesis chapter 11. Do you know what he's doing? He's actually building a statue on the very same area or location that the Tower of Babel was built. Isn't that crazy? What did they do at Babel? Well, God destroyed the world with a global flood. He's not going to do that again. If he does, we got a tower, baby. We'll get above the water, right? Okay, we're going to build a tower. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. Genesis 11. Okay, a great name for ourselves. And then what we see then in Genesis 12 is God says to Abraham, Abraham, that's not the way to roll. How I want you to roll is I will make your name great. Genesis 12. Nebuchadnezzar, if you notice the word set up, okay, Set up, you're going to see that verb, set up. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And if we go to slide number two real quick for me, you're going to see this. Slide number two, this goes back to chapter two of Daniel. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever and Nebuchadnezzar's like okay if God's gonna set up a kingdom right and we're just the head of gold in Daniel 2 I'm gonna make this whole statue of gold and I'm gonna challenge God go to the next slide now okay and so he's gonna set up Nebuchadnezzar's gonna set it up now God sets up a kingdom Nebuchadnezzar says I'm gonna challenge the decree of God I'm going to make my name great. That's how I'm going to do it. He set it up. First, next slide. And that word set up appears several times in the passage. All right? He then summoned um, the, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other um, provincial officials to... Um, to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Next slide. And so the satraps and prefects and ta, ta-da, 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 okay, all the way through the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Next slide. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. He says, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the, the uh, lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Fall down and worship, people. Show your allegiance, right? Next slide. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown in the blazing furnace. Next slide. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, international orchestra, all right? Verse 8, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There it is again. He's setting this thing up. Go ahead. Next slide. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of the gold that you have set up. 
you have got this incredible event planned, and it's happening, and these guys are refusing to bow the knee. They're refusing to toe the pluralistic line that they're being asked to do. How ungrateful these guys are. They're bucking your system. They're making you look bad on this, your very special day in front of all of your VIPs. They're messing it up, and they... And it's interesting because that's what the world's going to do to the Jewish people as we get deeper in the prophetic plan. They're going to do that. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Strike up the band. Get ready. I'm going to give you guys one more chance. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Wow. Well, you know the rest of the story. We read it last week, or a couple weeks ago. You know what happened. They refused to bow. Yet they get thrown in a fiery furnace. And there's a fourth person that supernaturally shows up in the furnace. The one Nebuchadnezzar said that looks like the Son of God. And sure enough, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He shows up. And it takes the furnace... It takes going public with their faith for them to have this Jesus pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus encounter in their life because they had the audacity to move from a privatized faith to a public faith. And when you look at these guys, these three Hebrew boys, they had nothing to do with this pluralistic, religiously pluralistic worldview and, and the values that they, they had and the way that they lived out their life. See, see, what all pluralistic societies say is that you can privately worship the way you want, but in public culture, you've got to be like everybody else. Do you think your religion is better than everybody else's? All these other people are bowing King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to say to them, they're bowing and you three guys are standing up telling everybody else they're wrong. You have the audacity, you know what you're doing in Babylon? That's not how we roll in Babylonian world. Does that sound familiar? You have the audacity to stand up and say, no, I don't roll that way. There's another belief system that we've got to consider here. There's one, there's a God who is greater and transcends the pluralistic religions of man. And even though they put pressure on us to assimilate to the public culture by privatizing our faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have none of it. These three Hebrew boys are doing what they've been called to do. And when you look at the story, they're loving the city. They're Jeremiah 29, they're loving the city, they're praying for the city, they're working for the city, they're engaging themselves in the culture and economic activities of the city. But when it comes time to say, you guys are going to privatize your faith, they say, King, we can't go there. We will not privatize that which God has entrusted to us, he is one God, he is superior to all other gods, and we don't care what consequences there are. We have chosen to love him and live for him for who he is, not for what just he does for me, what I can get out of him. We love him for who he is, therefore we will not, if not, we will not bow. He may deliver us, but if not, we will not bow. You see, pluralism plays out now in a lot of practical ways. And those practical ways, if you believe that all belief systems are equal and they're all valid and nobody's wrong and everybody's right, what that does is it renders everybody's belief system shallow. It believes everybody's, makes everybody's views equal and therefore they're meaningless. They're meaningless. And when you live with a pluralistic 
religious viewpoint, eventually it gets lived out, and what gets lived out, our feelings are the ultimate guide. God's word, there's no God's word. Everybody's equal, everybody's got their take, everybody's got their perspective. Don't get too excited about any one perspective. Feelings are the ultimate guide then. I'll do what feels good. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. Don't be judging other people. God is the ultimate yes. You know what? If ever there was a time in the lives of these three Hebrew boys to whisper each other, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know, guys, you know, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is falling. The orchestra plays, the international band plays, hail to the chief, everybody falls down. We're the only three guys. I mean, come on, man. Everybody else is doing it, right? Feelings are the ultimate guide. It would feel a whole lot better just to fall on our faces for five seconds and get this over with. If ever there was a time in their lives they could have said that and reasoned that way, that feelings are the ultimate guide. If there's ever a time to rationalize, look, let's just go along with it. It's a lot better for us to be officers in the king's service than ashes in the king's furnace. We'll do so much more good if we can just be officers, not ashes. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Let's not make a scene, right? What good is a fanatic anyway? Judging is the ultimate sin nowadays. We don't want to be fanatics. We don't want to be weird. We got to build bridges to the world. We got to build bridges to the idolaters and the pagans. God won't mind one little bow, right? If ever there was a time, this was it for them to subscribe to a religiously pluralistic viewpoint of life. And oh, I know. Hey, let's just bow our knees, but we won't bow in our hearts. Let's just do it that way. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, knees, not the heart. We good? Everybody good? We go home tomorrow or tonight? Back to our Babylonian cushy offices and lifestyles. Everything's good. No flack. Nobody's accusing us on the social media networks of their day. It's all good. Come on now. Because after all, God is the ultimate yes. Don't get too radical about anybody, right? He's just the ultimate yes. Babylonians got their gods. Jews got their gods. Hindus got their god. Well, thousands of gods. Islam's got their god. Christians got their god. God is the ultimate yes. Have you bought in? Are you like a fish in the water and you just lived and breathed it for so long? You've used the gills in the water for so long you don't even know what's happening because that's the world you've lived in for so long. I stand before the new community and I call you under the, uh, on the authority of the word of God, the authority of the lifestyle example of three Hebrew boys that would not bow the knee. I call you out. Don't be don't the problem I got with religious pluralism is not that I mean it's not that I'm angry and upset and I don't like other people and 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 eating their foods and getting to know them I don't reject religious pluralism because somebody wants to emphasize a certain truth or visualize God maybe in a certain way or with a certain analogy I reject religious pluralism because religions teach contradictory ideas they cannot all be right Jesus was not a pluralist Christianity asserts Jesus died on a cross Islam says he didn't both can't be right Hindus they say there's many gods Christianity says one God three persons they both can't be right I'm sorry if it offends but they can't be right uh, Present-day Judaism says that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Christians say that he was. Both can't be right. And my problem with religious pluralism, it's not logical, it's not rational, it's not biblical. And Jesus himself refused to be a pluralist. 
Oh, by the way, I've come to show you a way to God. I can't tell you what way is going to work for you, but here's a way. Follow me if you want. If not, choose another one. It's all good. Is that his approach? No. He says, I am the way. And see, in Christianity, when it comes to the final idea of death, you know, death is final. In Christianity, you're followed by eternal reward or eternal punishment. All right? In Eastern religions, death is a door of the soul that passes through many times as it works out the karma and reincarnation. And some teach there's no life after death. So you can see the problem. When someone dies, they might go to heaven or hell. They might be reincarnated. reincarnated. They might simply turn to dust, but they can't do them all at the same time. It's not bigotry to say so. It's simple logic. And I call this new community out to all of us that we would not subscribe to the religious pluralism of our day. And you're seeing this, and I'll say more in this series about the World Economic Forum and the economical plan that's the great reset that's planned for our world. I've got notes in the U version if you want to check that out. But I'm not going to get there this morning. But there's also a religious wing to the World Economic Forum. And they understand they got to have religion to get you to buy the ideology, to get you to buy into religious pluralism. they got to have religion to do it. And so that's why you've got to watch even the big evangelical names in the world, those who, who, are, who have radio programs and books and podcasts, and they're, make, they're movers and shakers in big evangelical world. you got to watch because it gets its tentacles into our thought processes and puts us in a position where now that everybody's equal, don't get too excited about anything, and we're all on equal footing, everybody's viewpoints is as valid as somebody else's, and it renders everybody's viewpoint then null and void because nobody's viewpoint's important or better than another. So church, what about feelings are the ultimate guide? What about that? Because there's no truth, it results in indifference. Do you see that? How if everybody's equal, you're indifferent to everybody. There's no distinctives for anybody, right? So your feelings become the most reliable guide to what you should do in your life. The culture says, navigate by feelings. Follow your heart. Nebuchadnezzar was just following his heart, right? Well, what if your heart's sinful? And what if your heart leads you down a non-returnable road and you end up not liking it anymore? On Twitter, they're celebrating D-Trans Day. It's all these transgender people who bought into the transgender ideology and now they regret it and they're telling the world their stories. We bought in and now we can't go back. And you talk about suicidal, that's suicidal. We followed our hearts. Well, what if you feel like incinerating people who make you mad, like Nebuchadnezzar? You see, we need an external guide based on objective reality to guide us toward human flourishing, to enable us to discern right from wrong. But secular culture calls this arrogant. The Bible calls it truth. Question, have your feelings become your ultimate guide in life? Feelings are not the ultimate guide. Biblical truth is the ultimate guide. Feelings aren't reliable. We must tether our lives and our decisions to the reality of what God says as God defines it. More than feelings, God tells me who I am, that I'm deeply loved. And in love, he has given me truth that guides me. And if I declare that I want freedom, I'm like a fish in the water, and I want freedom, just put me on the land so I can be completely free. Like a fish out of water, we realize a fish can't live out of water. That's not freedom, that's destruction. We can't live out of the water of God's truth, even though we count it as freedom. Because if feelings are the ultimate guide, that's going to be our guide, and that's going to determine all of our decisions. And it's going to come and go based on whatever's happening, happens to be occurring in your life at any given moment. Feelings are not the ultimate guide. God's truth is the ultimate guide. Secondly, happiness is the ultimate goal. 
Another gift of religious pluralism. Do what makes you happy. Doesn't matter what you believe. Nebuchadnezzar was just trying to be happy. Everybody get the international orchestra together. Let's play the songs. Hail to the chief. Everybody hit the ground. I pulled the world together. I've created a new Babylonian experience. Bringing the world together to do a lot of good things. Make a name for ourselves. Makes me happy. One person may feel happiest living on the streets as a drug user. Another person feels happiest continuing to pursue throughout their lifetimes new sexual partners every weekend. Another may feel happiest dressing up and acting like they're the opposite gender. Question. What if your quest for happiness enslaves or denies someone else love or freedom? Is it really love? Is it loving for your hu- to leave your husband and children, marry your lesbian girlfriend, and deny your children their mother? Is it loving to live life that way in a pluralistic age? Is it loving to always affirm the lifestyle maybe of someone who dies with AIDS at 32? Who is the true hater? The people who say, do what makes you happy, even if you die 40 years earlier than you should have died because of your decisions that you've made, or the people who say, why don't you come to God and let him define truth? Who is the true hater in that scenario? Well, stop imposing your moral views on my happiness. I'll die for that. That's what I think. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Happiness is not the ultimate goal. You know what the ultimate goal is? It's holiness. It's God helping you to be all that he's called you to be. It's using his gifts in a way that he wants you to use them and the way he's intended them to be used He set you up for true happiness and joy and human flourishing. And it's through him, our suffering and our heartache. It's through the furnace experiences of life that he shows up and he does incredible things. In those moments where we least expect it, when we go public, we we go from privatized to a public living out and walking out of what he's called us to be and do, Jesus meets us in those furnace moments. And instead of just making us happy, he makes us holy through them so feelings are the ultimate guide happiness the ultimate goal and judging is the ultimate sin another gift of religious pluralism Nebuchadnezzar took it personally when these boys refused to bow, bend, or budge. You guys, you three Hebrew boys, are telling all these other people that they're wrong. When you're not bowing, you're saying there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with me. You're judging me and my culture. How dare you, a Jewish captive, step into my world on my dime, eating my food, dressing in my clothes, getting your uh, graduate degrees at my schools and you can't bow the knee for me. You're judging me. That's what religious pluralism, that's how it thinks, that's how it lives, that's how it behaves. And that's where he's at. Judging is the ultimate sin, you see. If anything at all is classified as sin in secular culture, it's an act of judging others. Follow your heart, but don't you dare claim that someone else is following their heart or pursuing happiness wrongly. Questioning the path of the nature of their chosen happiness is off limits. That's the age in which you and I live. And it's seen as judgmental. It's equated with hate. Love means affirming whatever journey a person wants to be on. And if it's all about tolerance, I would ask, where is the tolerance for the three Hebrew boys that had the audacity to stay standing? 
Where's tolerance for them? You see, they were judged. You see, judging is not the ultimate sin. We have to have judgment. You have to have discernment. Judgmentalism, we got a problem with. But judging is not a sin. It's not, it's not wrong to look at something, have an open mind, eventually close the open mind on something solid, something truth-based, something based and grounded, make decisions, call it what it is. That's not hate. That's not arrogance. Judging is not the ultimate sin. Rejecting Jesus is the ultimate sin. For he bore all of our judgment. And when you reject the fourth man in the fire, the Bible gives no room for anyone to assure you that you have eternal life. I know that sounds exclusionary, but it's only through Jesus. He's the best hope we have for getting us home. Happiness, the ultimate goal. Feelings, the ultimate, the ultimate goal or the ultimate guide. Judgment's the ultimate sin. What, what other kind of world are we living in? God is the ultimate guess. It's a final gift of pluralism. We can't know anything for certain. Truth is beyond us. So what? that makes all deities and religions valid. So knock yourself out with the religion or God of your choice. But keep those beliefs to yourself. You can believe in the supernatural if you want. Just don't tell me I have to believe that way or I have to believe in your selected deity, what your selected deity says I should do. And that's what Daniel 3 is about. Nebuchadnezzar, God is the ultimate guess, right? Nobody knows who God is or how best to approach him and three Hebrew boys put up their hand way in the back and they say, you want to hear about our God? Let's, let me tell you about him. You see, God is not the ultimate guess. Life, living life without God is the ultimate guess. There is a God, he's self-disclosed, he's revealed himself throughout time and through general revelation, special revelation of the Bible, and eventually in Jesus. And you're not guessing. He lived, he died, he resurrected. There's eyewitnesses. It's, it's etched in our history. It, it happened before us. We, we have eyewitnesses of this. You're not guessing. It happened. And we all have to deal with the truth of Jesus. And I've decided never to disagree with, from somebody, with somebody who rose from the dead. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Have you bought in? Happiness is the ultimate goal. I just want to be happy. I know this is not right and this is not right and the Bible says this. And you know, this, I just want to be happy. Judging is the ultimate sin. You can never call anything, tell anybody they're wrong, or take a stand on anything, right? God is the ultimate guess. Don't get too excited. Nobody knows really anything, right? Have you bought in? You see, in this, in this culture... Religious pluralism dominates, and it, it has destroyed so many lives. And it will destroy yours and mine if we buy in and think like the religious pluralist of today. You know, I think a slide, a Glennon Doyle family is a slide we're looking at. I think it's near the end. There we go. Glennon Doyle, maybe you know her. Maybe some of you have followed her on social media accounts and things. At one time... Uh, she was um, a Christian mom blogger. She followed her heart. She listened to her feelings. And she always posts about how judgmental truth tellers are. I know this because I followed her for some time. She made headlines in 2016 when she left her husband and the father of her three kids for a lesbian relationship. And Glennon, if you're ever watching this, you're loved. You're made in the image of God. You have so much to offer. And I would just encourage you to come home to the creative norms and patterns of, of truth because that's how you're going to be most fulfilled. But she tells how she, she unlearned everything she had been taught about family, sex, love, God, Christianity. She had to, she had to rethink and deconstruct all of that. Big word, deconstruction. Everybody wants to deconstruct. 
And she tells how she unlearned everything she had been taught about those things in order to find happiness. And her core message to women all over the world, break free from whatever constraints you've been conditioned to think you have and embrace your inner wild side. If you do, you'll be happy. Listen to your intuition. Break free from your cage. So many times I think people are trying to run from God. But they can never escape themselves. People magazine said Doyle might just be the patron saint of female empowerment. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. God is the ultimate guess. When you go that path, you'll go any direction you think is good, regardless of what people can say or not say, or evidence for or against, pro and con, doesn't matter. I have a right to be happy. You know, I don't want you to miss the love story in all of this. And there is a love story, a true love story. If we go back to verse 17, it's a beautiful place in, the, in this passage and in our text. And I love this because you remember how last week I talked to you about how these Hebrew boys, they came to the place in verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know Verse 18, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, these guys are not just bucking a trend. They're not just coming against religious pluralism of their day because they're bored. They have nothing else to do. They're not just doing that. They're coming at this because, and don't miss it, they love the Lord. They worship the Lord. They love what God has done in their life. They love him supremely. He's given them their lives. And so in all the death and carnage of captivity, God has watched over them and they know that. And, and he's given them their health even when they wouldn't eat the king's food. And he's given them families and families that gave them names. The names of God are embedded in their names. He's given them minds that allow them to interpret dreams. He's given them their abilities to lead and govern in a foreign land. God has been at work in these, the lives of these boys. And they're saying to the king, you know what? God has the power to deliver us. But if he doesn't, we want you to know that we love him so much. And in this moment of pluralistic history, we're going to stand for him. And we're going to express our love for him in this way. I love that. It reminds me of a story circulated some years ago. The story is John Blanchard. He stood up from the bench. He straightened up his World War II Army uniform, and he studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. And he was looking for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face, ironically enough, he's never seen. His interest in this girl that he did not know 13 months before this moment in New York City Grand Central Station, he was going to the uh, library in Florida, and he found a book, and he took it off the shelf, and he was intrigued by this thing, and he loved the book, not so much for what the author had written, but for what some person who had the book before he read it had written notes in the book about what the author was saying, and, and the notes themselves were so thoughtful, and it reflected, you know, an insightful mind, and he was so intrigued that this, this, uh, John Blanchard decides he's going to track down who it was that had the book before him. And so he was able to find her name in the book. He located with some difficulty, located her address in New York City. And he wrote her a letter introducing himself, you know, and he invited her to correspondence. And the next day he was shipped off overseas in World War II. He was a lieutenant in the Navy and the woman who lived in New York City had written all those notes in the margin of the library book. 
and, and he loved the notes. Like I said, he's intrigued by the notes, the wisdom of the notes. And he discovered her name was Miss, Miss Hollis Maynell. And he wrote her, and, he, and she began to write him back. He's in the war, right? And he's away. He's overseas. And he, he enjoys this correspondence. It was wonderful. They developed this incredible, deep friendship. And during the next year, over the next year and a month or so, 13 months or so, they grow to know each other through this correspondence, and they found that this romance was budding. And so it got to the place where Blanchard was curious, right? He's a GI. He wants to know what she looks like. And so Blanchard requests a photograph, but she refused. And she felt that if, it, if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. Of course, he had the utmost admiration for her, and he had an imagination for her, too, by this time. And even though he had asked for a picture, she never sent him one. And he thought to himself, I wonder what she means by that. Finally, the war was over, and he was coming back. And he was going to meet her at Grand Central Station at a particular spot at 7 p.m. And she wrote him the last letter before he traveled. And she said, hey, we don't know what we look like. I don't know what you look like at all, but here's what I'll do. I'll stand at a particular place, and you'll know me because I'll be wearing a great big red rose on my lapel. And he said, well, in that case, I'll be carrying a big blue book that I got there from the library. So he gets out of the train, he walks over the spot, and he sees these two women that are there. One woman is beautiful, she's young, and the other woman is dowdier. She's much heavier, much, much older than he had imagined. She's wearing a great big red rose. She's well past 40, he says, and graying hair tucked under the woman's hat and this worn hat that she had. And Lieutenant Blanchard described her. She's kind of pale and plump-faced with gentle. She's gentle-looking and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was an identity, that was to identify me to her. And the younger woman that was with her, uh, he describes her, just a beautiful lady, and she walks away. And he stops in his tracks. And there he stood, and he waited there. This older woman with the red rose on her lapel stood there looking for somebody. He said, I was split. I felt choked up because I know this, this correspondence was beautiful, and her notes in the book were gorgeous and just so insightful and so just attracted me in so many ways. And, and here I was, and I had this deep longing to know this woman whose spirit had companioned me and upheld me during my time at war. And I thought, well, well, this won't be love and romance, but hey, it could be something precious and maybe a friendship for which I will always be grateful. And so he summoned up the courage, and he swallowed hard, and he walked over, and he said, hello, ma'am, my name is Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Hollis, and I'm so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? And she smiled and said, son, I have no idea who you are or what is really this, this is about. But there's a young lady who was just here standing beside me who walked away. She said that I should wear this red rose on my lapel. And only if you were to ask me to dinner that I should tell you that she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. She said something about it being some kind of a test. Maybe what you're going through in this religiously pluralistic age is a test. You see, these three incredible Hebrew boys had incredible experiences with God. They knew God. They read God's book, the notes that God had given. They enjoyed God's notes. They shared God's visions. They felt God's blessings. They were preconditioned by a, a pre-exilic revival that they had before they were taken captives by the good king Josiah. They heard the preaching of Jeremiah, and these boys had the word of God built into them before they ever got into cap Babylonian captivity. But the rose of God's will was placed on the lapel of the Babylonian empire captivity experience. And they had a decision to make.
In their humanity, they were disappointed. They were bitter. They were choked up. They didn't want to go to Babylon and do the Babylonian thing. But they thought, this is our new reality. We're going to have to go. And ultimately, it was the nation of Babylon that sent them across the desert, 700 miles away from their home, into a furnace, ultimately, where they all got to experience a personal visit with a rare pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. After Daniel chapter 3, we don't hear any more about these guys. So far as we know, they spent the rest of their days living out, walking out their faith, longing for the fourth man in the fire. And I know what some of you romantics are thinking. What happened at dinner with John Blanchard and Hollis Maynell, right? That's what you're thinking. See, we're wired for love. Christians, we should have known underneath the doubtiness of Jesus, underneath the unhandsomeness of Jesus. What does Isaiah say? He says there's nothing good about him. That makes us long for him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And underneath the doubtiness of Jesus, the unhandsomeness of Jesus, there's a beauty greater than the sun shining in all of its strength. We should have known. You see, feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. God is the ultimate guess. But in contrast to all of that, Christ is the ultimate Savior. Abandon your world religion this morning. Abandon your atheism this morning. Abandon your religious pluralism this morning. Come to him. He longs to save. Come to him. There's going to be a time in your life when some, go to verse 14 quickly for me. We're wrapping up. Verse 14, there's going to be a time in your life that you're going to stand before somebody and they're going to say, is it true? You're a Christian? Is it true that you're one of them? Is it true it might be your boss. It might be the person you work with. It might even be your parents. What, you're going to this church now? You're not just going to go, you know, Christmas and Easter aren't good enough for you? Right? Is it true? A boyfriend or girlfriend, college roommate, somebody on social media, is it true? You know what these Hebrew boys did? They stood up and they said, yes, sir, all in. Did I invite you to live your life in a secular age on the truth of Jesus? Ask Guinness, and I'll close with this. Ask Guinness tells us one of the periodic, uh, in one of the periodic efforts to wipe out religious belief in the former Soviet Union, the Communist Party, sent out KGB agents to the nation's churches on Sunday morning, and and one such agent came to one of the churches, and he was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. And he asked her, Babushka, or grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? Well, why, of course, she shot back but only if you crucify him first. So see, friends, you and I can meet burning, fiery furnace with three other words. Old, rugged, cross. Such love. And the true nature of of a heart is seen in in its response to the unattractive, Why don't you come to him today? Why don't you come to him today? Why don't you say yes and say, I'm all in. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your truth. 
Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the beauty of the love story that's nested in a whole lot of carnage and a whole lot of fret and a whole lot of anger and a whole lot of worldview stuff. Thank you so much. And we know, Lord, that uh, you have the words of truth and of life. And I ask and pray here this morning that you would guide us to navigate this, this uh, religiously pluralistic age. And we will throw in with Jesus, all in. And we'll live for you. And be a bear witness to your truth in a culture that's really gone uh, mad and unreasonable. And we thank you for him. And we thank you for this church family. And we just thank you for this opportunity to be what you've called us to be for such a time as this. So now you bless this group. We anoint this group and set this group apart for the days ahead in your name. Amen. You've been such a great group. Will you stand with me this morning? Again, next week, please be here to hear Jeff Keaton, former college buddy, okay? We're going to bring the word on biblical worldview. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.